Hi, and welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. We grow up learning to read words and then starting to associate them with food or with cleaning products or with danger or something that's supposed to be beautiful. And you start to cultivate this kind of sensibility or understanding of the mixture of emotions that a typeface projects. That was Jay Abbott Miller, a globally renowned, award-winning graphic designer who since 1999 has been a partner at Pentagram's New York office. Pentagram is the legendary design consultancy, approaching its 50th anniversary in 2022. Founded in London, it has offices in New York, Austin, and Berlin. Among its clients are Planned Parenthood, Rolls-Royce, Saks Fifth Avenue, Starbucks, the Guggenheim Museum, Verizon, and Warner Brothers. Its services are expansive, ranging from brand identity to environmental graphics, data visualization, film and motion graphics, interiors and architecture, naming and packaging, along with book design and digital editorial, exhibition, industrial product, and sound design. Abbott Miller has received numerous design honors, including the American Institute of Graphic Arts, AIGA, medal, the highest honor in his field. He has worked extensively with art museums and is represented in the permanent collections of the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum, along with multiple other major museums and the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. For 30 years, he has designed for dance and performing arts for the Twice Arts Foundation. He's the author and co-author of numerous articles and four books, including Design Writing Research, Writing on Graphic Design. A survey of his work was published by Princeton Architectural Press in September 2014. Welcome, Abbott, and thanks for being part of the conversation on Artscoping. Thanks for having me. Abbott, there have been some milestones in your field lately. Milton Glaser passed away at 91 years of age recently. He designed the I Love New York logo, Bob Dylan's psychedelic album cover, New York Magazine's graphic identity, and countless other innovations. Would you share some reflections on his contributions? It was really interesting to see the degree of awareness of his work. And, you know, we inside design circles, of course, he's legendary. But I remember driving in my car and hearing it was part of a national news roundup where they mentioned Milton Glaser's passing. And it sort of felt like, wow, that's a new level for graphic designers. And of course, it makes sense that he would reach that because his projects were really almost generationally defining, incredibly powerful visual landmarks with the Dylan poster and New York Magazine. He really stepped outside of strictly design interests and really crossed over into journalism. His whole underground gourmet aspect was another way that he defined a bigger territory for design. But just stylistically, what he represented was a really powerful postmodernism where he looked at any and all sources. And that was part of the larger studio, Pushpin Studio, that he founded with Seymour Quast and Ruffins and Sorrel, they kind of said European modernism is great. It's one language among many others. What was unique about Milton was this ability to synthesize all these references. You knew that it was Milton behind it, but the sources and the outcomes were really incredibly varied. I've seen so many recollections about what a generous person he was. And even myself, having interviewed with him, the idea that he took the time out to interview so many people who commented on it in the last couple of weeks. He was an alum of Cooper Union, where I went to school. So he was sort of baked into the uh, 
the kind of legacy of that school in a unique way. There was enormous emotional outpouring about him, and I think it was incredibly deserved. And speaking of Cooper Union, you started out as a Hoosier who left Indiana and arrived at Cooper Union here in New York. Can you fill us in on your path after that? I had only found out about Cooper Union because I did a summer session at Parsons between my junior and senior year of high school. And most of those students in that program were kind of from the New York area. And everybody was talking about Cooper Union and how they were hoping to get in. And it really wasn't on the radar. And from the perspective of Indiana, my teachers didn't know about it. It was sort of a strange idea that there was this school that was free in New York and very little known. But in New York, it was famous. After I graduated from Cooper, I immediately started working for a guy named Richard Saul Werman, who had just relocated from LA to New York. And I really liked the fact that he called himself an information architect. He was really using design and publishing in a really different way. And I worked with him doing very formatted, very templated publications. So it was, in a way, it was not a great design job, but Richard was a really interesting character. He studied with Lou Kahn at UPenn, and he had this very different attitude, almost thinking about a broader picture of design. We started working on one that there wasn't really a model for, which was a book, a guidebook to the Museum of Modern Art. And I worked on it for like two or three years, and it was not going well. And I, I learned later that across the board, the curatorial department seemed to have a pact that they were going to fight this book with every fiber of their being, and they just blocked it. It came across as, oh, they, you know, they're still working on their edits. And this went on for years, literally. But it was an interesting experience, kind of trying to develop a typology for how you would represent art history, represent a building in the form of a book. While I was working with Richard, I started also doing a lot of writing and research. He was at the same time developing a book called Information Anxiety, which was kind of about the profusion of information and the lack of clarity in communicating. So it was kind of an early forerunner to these interests in data visualization and clarity in communication. Along the way, he also started developing the TED conference. So he was really visionary in that way. As I was working with Richard, I was also sort of moonlighting, <laughs> working on a number of projects with art galleries in New York, Andrea Rosen, Jay Gorney Modern Art. And when I got a, a kind of a year-long retainer with the New Museum, for an incredibly very low sum, I felt like I had the security to kind of leave my job and start my own studio in my apartment. And then after that, I really started to develop an interest in writing about the history of design and entered a graduate program in art history at City University and studied with amazing people there like Rosalind Krauss and Rosemary Hogbletter. And ultimately, there was a kind of a tug of war between running what was becoming a more successful design studio and these more academic pursuits. And I found myself being really fulfilled by the studio work and not fully committed to the idea of a life involved with teaching. So the idea of a PhD in art history started to fade um, after about three years. Once I was running my own studio, 
it had a life of its own. I took on one employee and then suddenly had three or four. And we've always been a very small team. I think I've only ever had about six or seven people within my team. And after doing that for about a decade, I was invited to join Pentagram, which is essentially an organization that's really structured around the unique culture within the different teams that are at Pentagram. So it was a kind of a pretty comfortable fit being invited by a group of people who say, we want you to do what you do in this environment, and we're here to help you do even more of that work. And full confession, it wasn't long after you started there that we began to work together. Yeah, yeah, right away. (laughs) We've actually worked together on multiple occasions, from your award-winning graphic design at the Whitney Museum to the two other museums I directed after that. And right now, we're collaborating on a signage program highlighting the achievements of the G's Bend quilters in Alabama. So tell us, how do you go about framing the issues needed to arrive at a design solution for something like a museum's ID? Well, it's interesting. It kind of varies project by project, but I always find myself drawn to the context, whether it's a visual context or an architectural setting or a social setting. I'm always researching, and obviously there's a big immersion phase, which is essentially a combination of practical research, what needs to be accomplished, as well as the emotional and social framing of a project. I really love digging into the archives, if there is one, or digging into the visual history, because it anchors me. And I really believe in this idea of being able to excavate the material, make it show itself, the solution, so that there's a sense of inevitability to the final proposal. I would admit to finding it difficult when there is none of that context, where it's a brand new thing with no history, no, no powerful associations. I actually like that archival, archaeological process. It really suits my mentality to find the design solutions already there. When I was working with the Guggenheim, I felt like, why is this institution never embrace this incredible Frank Lloyd Wright lettering on the facade. (laughs) And, you know, that led to creating with Jonathan Heffler a typeface for the Guggenheim that was based on that. Or when I did the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia, the identity came out of this unusual visual trope that, that Dr. Barnes used to hang literally every wall in the museum, this kind of symmetrical ensemble. I find myself excavating and trying to get into that core DNA of whatever the institution is or the client. And really that's about immersion. There's a lot of conversation working with a museum right now. And it's interesting because we've talked to, I think, every facet of the organization. And in some ways that's been easier during lockdown (laughs) because people are more generally available for shorter sessions. So that research is always an indispensable part of what goes behind coming to some solutions. And the more grounded it is, the happier I am. So you mentioned that Frank Lloyd Wright made use of writing on the facade of the Guggenheim. Well, when we were working on the Whitney's graphic identity, Marcel Breuer had written the words Whitney Museum, just those two words. You chose not to use those as a basis going forward. Give us a bit of background on that. 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes the references don't actually give you an answer. And at the time when you had just become the director, it really felt like the Whitney, and I think, you know, the building kind of carries on. It has this incredibly distinct persona in the architectural landscape. It's a memorable icon, the building itself. And I remember seeing both how the letterhead, when it began, as well as the inscription that credits Breuer, which I was just looking at yesterday. It's interesting how the typographic references for those examples of lettering really called back to almost classical Roman inscriptions. It just gives you a sense of how he or the people that work with him on those expressions connected it more to like universals. And I think that's what makes that building so fascinating is it's almost out of time. It's almost this block of stone that has classical solidity to it. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the mark that we developed, which is now no longer used, they altered that as they moved to the piano building. The mark was so associated with that building, it tried to be the building. And I just remember thinking, the Guggenheim is this, <laughs> MoMA's that, the Met is this, and this is the Whitney, this almost awkward, geometric, blocky thing. I remember thinking that it was a, a bold choice on your part as a client <laughs> to support that. Well, it was and will forever be an ingenious solution, Abbott. Are there uh, some historical antecedents in design that you turn to or particularly admire? It's a little bit of a cliche because there's been a lot about the Bauhaus because of its 100th anniversary, but it to me is the touchstone for so many aspects that are now integral to the way we think about design. As a thing, it also has this diaspora around the world that I can't think of a single other movement or precedent that can claim as much influence with my wife, Ellen Lupton, who's a curator and a design educator, we did a book about the Bauhaus many years ago that just been republished. It was called the ABCs of the Circle Square Triangle, the Bauhaus and Design Theory. She was looking at this unusual perspective of form and geometry and primary shapes as something that was almost like a design language that operated beyond words. I was looking at the same sort of territory, but looking at the Bauhaus as exploring this idea of the childhood of art and how many of the courses there were really about stripping away what you learn and going back to fundamentals like teaching children. So Friedrich Froebel was a progressive educator who looked at primary geometries and gave children building blocks and rudimentary drawing exercises. The visual language of the Bauhaus was really related to that exploration of how do we get back to fundamentals of visual expression. That's the leitmotif of so much design still, that idea of reduction, powerful abstraction. Those are the animating principles that still have so much relevance. We're in a different landscape, and it can sound really romantic, but if you're looking for 
what has constituted our field and our education in design, that's probably the strongest. When we did that project, it was for an exhibition at Cooper Union. And in many ways, it was an excavation of what did we just go through as students here? Nobody really talked about the Bauhaus much, but I remember our color theory teacher, Erwin Rubin, had studied with Albers at Yale, and you couldn't get a clearer lineage there. Even to this day, there are these really strong traces of Bauhaus pedagogy in the education of artists and designers. So I think that's, for me, the the biggest one. Well, the Bauhaus was at a very charged time politically, much like the one we live in today. Do you have a favorite example of political propaganda using typefaces? You know, I always think of, well, two things. One is John Hartfield, who was an amazing political message maker and used photo montage in this way that hit hard because it was sort of manipulating the reality of photography and making subversive messages with what felt like the reality of everyday visuals and using you know powerful metaphors rhetorical devices but i also was thinking of my teacher at cooper hans Hacke, who was sort of a genius at using media and the language of advertising and design to, again, create counter messages and critiques of institutions and banking and art collecting and, you know, kind of in a inversion of the propaganda of everyday life. I really think of him as someone who, in a funny way, was a great design teacher, even though the class he taught was always called sculpture. It was one where words and images was the topic and how they come together. And so he was sort of this other North Star at Cooper. <laughs> and there were a lot of battles within the faculty there, but he was this rock that represented using the same techniques and strategies that we were being taught, but for entirely different ends, like not for commercial purposes. Yeah, one of the reasons he was in the 2000 biennial at the Whitney was that was the year he made that extraordinary project at the Reichstag called Die Bevölkerung, which was effectively a critique of what had been incised on that building in 1916, saying dem deutschen Völker, and he was making a distinction between the German population and the German people, between, in other words, a welcoming, all-embracing vision of a nation and one that was soon to be marked by racism. So, what a genius. By extreme contrast to Hakka, how successful, in your view, is Trump's infamous MAGA hat? I think that the strange part of that, I was just watching that show, Mrs. America, and reminded that let's make America great again was a Reagan slogan, which I felt like when I saw that in this show, I thought like, oh yeah, I kind of remember that. that basically Trump just dropped the let's. Um, what's really striking to me about the message is that it's integral to the apparel. It's integral to the cap. The other part is that typographically and design-wise, it couldn't be more banal. So it's really just about the meaning of the words. I don't think anyone could really identify a particular typeface that it's set in. 
it's centered, it's stacked, it's very rudimentary, like something that you could just call into a sign shop and say, I need 300,000 of these for a rally. <laughs> Can you please stitch them up and send them? It's had this unusual legacy because part of the message is that it's a cap and that works as a kind of a billboard. You know, there's an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry is trying to scare people away in a restaurant um, <laughs> by wearing it. And it sort of gets to the quality it has of almost announcing an identity statement that's face forward. So again, in the field of politics and graphics, how about Joe Biden's campaign logo? There was an article in Boing Boing this past week noting that the campaign was substituting two new typefaces, Decimal and Mercury. And Decimal is a sans-serif typeface released in September of last year, inspired by the type on vintage watches, while Mercury, which is a serif typeface released, I guess, 10 years ago, was designed for newsprint and to be adapted for different printing presses. And they put a lot of emphasis on how these newly chosen fonts reflected Biden's truthfulness. Help us understand how fonts have personalities and signification. It's something that has been gaining traction for a long time because with the desktop revolution and suddenly people making decisions about fonts, it's just become more and more part of the cultural fluency to understand that typefaces have meaning or associations, they carry personality. I always think of fonts as closer to voice and inflection. They're all doing something similar, delivering words and meaning through the words that are there, but they're spinning it in a certain way. Now, you know, people have this sensitivity that's a little bit heightened from, say, when I first started my career, the idea of a font having truthiness, feeling more reliable or more factual, it's about the authority that the typeface helps confer on the message. It's not just the font itself, but how it's used. So if you look at some of the Biden materials that they use to debut this new font, Mercury, as well as Decimal, they reminded me of Keep Calm and Carry On, the British wartime posters. They kind of are trying to project this notion of steadiness, stability, even-handedness. And in that way, they're just about the Biden message, which is, can we get back to something more sane? So the fonts, you know, they're both drawn by Jonathan Heffler, and I think it was developed for Esquire originally. We grow up learning to read words and then starting to associate them with food or with cleaning products or with danger or something that's supposed to be beautiful. And you start to cultivate this kind of sensibility or understanding of the mixture of emotions that a typeface projects. As designers, we sort of dig into that heavily. People that are reading those words, they're really the audience. The truth is in the reception of them. Abbott, it's been a few thousand years since the written word began, and you spend your life looking at creating, inventing, evaluating fonts. How do you approach that with discipline and with a fresh eye at the same time? There's an exploding number of typeface designs. It's really an incredible period, the last, say, 10, 15 years for font designers. It's become way more accessible. 
There are all kinds of smaller foundries that are publishing typefaces. What I'm really struck with is when we're doing a project and we're doing type research, most of them are not things that you want or need or you kind of want to consider, but there's this due diligence where we make that initial research exploration quite broad. You know, there's a little bit of a professional thing where you kind of want to be varied and you want to be making really interesting choices, but it's really interesting to me that the majority of things that you surface are absolutely not what you want. The idea that you're swarmed by possibilities and that there are so many to choose from, for a given project, once you have a notion of what you want to do, there's enough. I'm not saying there's not enough, and sometimes you do have to create your own. But it's fascinating in a universe of fonts that you get it down to like a group of five or six, and that's where the beauty contest is. It's not a group of 50 or 100. Well, you have a superb command of the history of graphic identities, and you've called yourself a dyed-in-the-wool formalist and written about, quoting here, the split between the hedonism of the eye and the obligations of function, message, and content. Give us some insight into how hedonism is manifested for you in this realm. Because of my interests and the way that I think about design, it's always bounded by what does it mean? What is it for? There's all of these obligations that I think is what may drive some people away from design. The importance of context, the necessity to tie back, make sense, be defensible in a setting with a client. And in some ways, all of that is where you try to be answerable and justify things. Hedonism, to me, is the stuff that you either insist on or know viscerally, like gut instinct, or even just, God forbid, taste, where you sort of want to do something visual that isn't really defensible. It's not driven by a big idea. It is just formally right in your mind or more powerful. It's like where the, some of the most difficult conversations come up is around color, partly because it like goes straight beyond logic. It's sort of intuitive. It often elicits the most conversation with clients. And I think that in some ways that's because it is inherently subjective. And I think everyone kind of knows that. So coming to some kind of agreement about why this color is often really difficult. So when I say hedonism, it's sort of about the sensual, the kind of haptic, sensory, the things that you can't go like, well, I did that because, and it often can have a role in just the whole stylistic or visual approach to a project. So it's not minor. It's not like a little box you tick at the end where you say, now I'm going to make it visual. It's really hardwired into things and it's often back to intuition. So Abbott, if you were to give advice to a young person thinking about a career in design, what advice would you give to her or him? Well, I'm speaking, I guess, partly to my daughter right now, who is um, <laughs> potentially uh, teetering into this field in some form. 
you know, I think it's about understanding your connection to the field. And by that, I mean, there's a bigger kind of range of ways to enter into design now. It's not that it's fragmented. It's just that there's highly visual and brand oriented. There's more technical and UI UX oriented. There's social design track. And so understanding the career that you picture yourself having is really important at the outset. And I know a lot of people are still, when they're young, figuring that out. Picturing your daily life, getting a grip on the texture of every day, and that has to be appealing, has to be satisfying, should not come as a surprise after you get out of school. And then the other part is just breaking out on your own. I'm old enough to have seen a number of people come through my team and come through Pentagram as a studio that some of them seem destined to mold their own environment work-wise and aesthetically. And that's really exciting. And other people really enjoy not having to look for clients and run a business. Again, that's another one of self-awareness. What kind of personality are you and where will you thrive? That would be my advice is having a bigger picture about the daily life of being a designer. Speaking of personality, Abba, tell us something about yourself that might surprise people. Well, this is a toss-up, Max, because <laughs> the first thing I thought of was that I was a chauffeur in high school. <laughs> and I drove this kind of executive around in his Rolls Royce. I had to drive him to O'Hare Airport every other week. And then also just make sure that the cars were gassed up and oiled. <laughs> but that's not super rich. I've lived in New York and Baltimore. I, I spend half of every week in Baltimore. And that's unusual. I've been doing that for like 25 years. I have a studio in Baltimore and a studio in New York, a house down here in Baltimore and an apartment in New York. And that duality, apart from lockdown, has been a really strong pattern in my life. It's like a yin and yang, you know, and I think if I was exclusively one or the other, I'd be a different person. It's a big part of the way my mind works is the library atmosphere of my studio in Baltimore and the very social quality of life at Pentagram in New York. Abbott, thank you for letting us into your world a bit and giving us some insight into an extraordinary career which has many years ahead. I'm very grateful to you for making the time. Yeah, it's fun to talk with you. We've been speaking today with Jay Abbott Miller, a leading designer and partner at Pentagram in New York City. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Artscoping. If you liked what you heard, feel free to follow the show at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts if you care to, which helps other listeners find their way to us.